Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador, and your host for this podcast. Each week, I'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief. When I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, and my life changed forever. I try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one. You can find me as The Dad Author on Instagram and at the Lemon Drop Books website. For this episode, I've travelled to Cheltenham to speak with Jane and Jimmy from The Good Grief Project. Jane and Jimmy speak to me about the death of their son, Josh, and how it shaped their outlook on life. You can find Jane and Jimmy on Instagram and Twitter as The Good Grief Project. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston's Wish. Okay, so today I have travelled to Winston's Wish in Cheltenham to meet two very special people, uh, two people that I am very privileged to call friends, and it's Jimmy and Jane from the Good Grief Project. Hi guys. Hi, it's great to be talking to you, Mark. So for my listeners, a lot of them might already know who you are. Could you please just introduce yourselves and who you are and what you do, please? Shall I go first? I'm Jane Harris um, and I'm a therapist and I also became a bereaved parent, actually, um, in 2011. Um, And that has been life changing for me. Yeah, well, my name is Jimmy Edmonds and um, and we are Josh's parents. uh, Josh died um, in a road accident in Vietnam in 2011. Um, um, my background is, is as a as a TV editor. I've made um, documentaries for television. We actually met at film school way back, way way back, um, and um, carried on um, making films together until Josh was born. At which point, that's when I learnt. I started to train as a therapist, um, and in recent years we've carried on making films together okay and uh, you know obviously you touched on it already in terms of josh and you know why we're here today really is to talk about josh and uh, your own um, experience with grief and um, are you able to share with my listeners just a little bit about what happened to josh and you know and that please yeah, yeah i can do that um he was um he'd been working in the ministry of sound he was 22 when he um went traveling he'd been working at the ministry of sound um and took a six month break i had saved up a lot of money um he had a flight out to bali and uh and a flight back from delhi and um, what happened in between um was 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 anybody's guess really but he traveled up through indonesia um, Malaysia, Thailand, um, made some friends on the way, um, travelled again through to uh, Laos and and to Hanoi in the uh, northern part of Vietnam, where um, with a few other friends they hired some motorbikes, these little Honda Winds, they're little mopeds, yeah. which is one of the most common ways of travelling around um, Southeast Asia. Um, and two days out of Hanoi, um, he... Um, had an accident whereby a dumper truck um, basically he swerved to avoid somebody stepping out into the road and um, went under the back wheels of a dumper truck we heard about this um, just three hours later the efficiency of Vietnam was such that they'd been able to contact the British consulate and um, and um, so it was um, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning um, that two policemen then um, knocked on our door to tell us what had happened. I remember personally myself through losing my dad and that kind of that feeling and that sense when someone's you know I mean I didn't have the knocking on your door but it's just so embedded in your mind isn't it when you find out those moments you know. Yeah, it, it, the world just sort of landed differently. Um, we were so traumatized by the information um, that 
um, it's it's still hazy in our minds. But from that moment, everything in our lives was different and has been different. But the trauma sort of rippled through the whole family because obviously we nobody ever imagines that they're going to outlive their child. No. Um, And so, you know, we basically, I suppose the first realization was that we were going to have to organize a funeral and we'd never thought about that. We'd never imagined that. It's your worst nightmare. Um, And in a way, we just had to do that. We had to, it was something that had to be done, wasn't it, Jimmy? Yeah. um, Well, of course, we also had to tell other members of the family. Um, And that is really, really hard um, because it's it's the two of us there. um, We've received this information. Um, Josh is dead. He's died and he's abroad. Um, And we've suddenly got to tell everybody else in the family. So there's my mum, his brother, Joe. Um, Rosa, who was actually upstairs in 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 in, in, in was still asleep. It was Sunday morning, and she heard the commotion in the kitchen and came down, and to find out what was happening. Um, and yeah, all of that stuff is absolutely stuck as 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 in 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 our minds, in my mind. And you know, was, you know, I've, I've often sort of referred to the fact that there's a before and after. Um, uh, this event in our lives there's nothing else in my life that I could say that about at all Mm. Um, so organising the funeral yeah um, we didn't want to involve a sort of traditional funeral director Um, um, we did know some and we needed to find out how it was that Josh's body would be repatriated from Vietnam and you know yeah we didn't really know what to do but all we what we did know is that we didn't really want to have um, just some kind of a ritual to crematorium um, when people started referring to the crematorium as the creme, I got very, very, very upset. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was just, it seemed to me it was demeaning everything that was about saying goodbye to somebody. I um, think at that point we decided that we were going to do it ourselves and Jimmy actually, <laughs> I'll never forget him saying, um, I'm going to build the coffin, I'm going to, we're going to do it. And And actually, Jimmy did it with the help of local friends because in a way Josh's funeral was very hands-on um and we actually I suppose it may be no surprise to people who know us but we actually did make a film eventually of that called Beyond Goodbye um which was about his funeral but it kind of grew it became more than a record of his life it became um a testimony for his friends to be able to talk about what Josh meant to them and they all felt really helped therapeutically they felt that because he died abroad beyond goodbye is a really good title because in a way nobody had a chance to say goodbye and the film beyond goodbye became our way of saying goodbye to josh and we really wanted to involve his friends though actually do you remember jimmy they were very reluctant to be involved because they said oh we'll cry we'll be upset and we said well of course and it dawned on us that all they needed to participate fully was permission to be themselves and what a wonderful what wonderful stuff they brought songs well, that they'd I, written it was amazing i mean i in retrospect i realized why funerals are actually quite important because um doing things actually lessens the pain if you don't do it you just sit there all right you've had this huge huge horrendous moment um and you know we've just learned that um, that our son has died he's no longer here he's going to be dead forever and that is just you just you know how do you deal with that so um the business of organizing a funeral taking a real hands-on things building that casket for him going down to the timber shop getting the board getting other friends involved with it sharing that that in a really physical physical way um was amazing and you know it took three or three three or four days to actually do it and everybody had a bit of a hand on it um but there was one good friend richard who who was a cabinet maker and so he took charge of the whole thing but we'd be going back and forward to the workshop every day to see how it was coming along and you know and just sort of helping to polish it and then sand this bit and work this bit and all the rest of it it was a yeah it was a really important thing to sort of um to manage that, I think that's an incredible thing to do. And I think a lot of people, 
you know, after someone's died, the the thing, like you said, is waiting for the funeral to happen, probably. Two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and keeping busy, at, like you say, and, you know, and actually getting his friends involved as well in the process. Yeah. I think that's a yeah. really nice way of, you know, getting the, a it community was, together. It, yeah. Jane says it was important for them, but it was actually very important yeah. for us. Well, because yeah. Because yeah. we didn't know that many of Josh's friends. We knew the stuff, the, the kids from school. But he'd moved to London. And so all of his London cohort, we didn't really know them at all. And so getting to know them and making friends with them afterwards has actually been a really good way of us maintaining some kind of relationship with Josh. It was the beginning of so many friendships that really held us together in the early days of our grief, because our grief is very different now. But in those early days, we were so traumatised. We were so... We'd sometimes wake at three or four in the morning and just lie there thinking this can't have happened to us this is something that happens to other people but through communicating and through doing and through friendships and the support we have managed to sort of move along um and change with every passing year i suppose um and the grief is very different now from what it was back then yeah i mean it changes doesn't it as as you move on as life moves on and uh, and i guess the other nice thing having uh, his friends from london involved is that they probably had their own stories to tell yeah about yeah, Josh yeah, as well that yeah. maybe you didn't know about you know exactly. so much it's carrying on those yeah, yeah. there was so much yeah. laughter I mean that film Beyond Goodbye um, you know is, is astonishing to watch now and it's fantastic to have a record of that day because there's so much laughter and joy and obviously huge amounts of tears but it's a wonderful thing to be able to refer to and remember. Well I didn't know for instance that he'd been responsible for um, 200 um, video clips of uh from the ministry of sound records of the club nights interviews with some of the djs and all of the places that he'd actually traveled to beyond you know we didn't know yeah. about that he'd yeah. been to he'd been to ibiza he'd been to all sorts magaluf is magaluf an <laughs> island i don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh amsterdam you know making films he'd, done, for the he'd, he'd yeah. been to berlin he obviously took to after his parents in that respect didn't he without you even knowing yeah and all sorts of stuff that he'd and he'd, what, what had also happened was that he'd become a, a, a he'd, he'd grown up as a guy as well the last time yeah, you know, when he was living with us, he was still a bit of a, a an errant teenager. He was like, he was a bit moody. He really didn't, you know, he was didn't really quite know what he was wanting to do in life. And he was basically he was a bit of a pain to be around, frankly. But <laughs> a teenager. <laughs> but what we discovered through the work that he's been doing at the and from his friends later on was that he was a guy who had matured quite significantly in the move to. To, to London um, um, the mere fact that he'd cut his hair from being a long shaggy locks to you know something that was yeah. you know really sort of well cro- 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 yeah. close cut and yeah. you know it was it, yeah I mean we, we were big we found out we found a new a new man yeah. effectively after his death and that's that is a sad yeah. but I'm so pleased that we've getting all of those extra stories in I think that's the tragedy though and you know his brother and sister say that you know siblings are often the forgotten mourners they are so left out you know people say how are your mum and dad but they'll very rarely say to the siblings and how are you Um, and and Joe and Rosa described it as you know they'd found this friend they'd found this person he was their new adult kind of best mate and they lost him at that point and that's such a tragedy. And of course, they'll never get over that. But like us, they are changed and strengthened too through the process of, I suppose, exploring what grief means and talking about it. Because I don't know if you'd agree, Jimmy, but we've discovered, I, I certainly feel I've discovered that if you don't address grief, it will out. It will find its way out either physically or psychologically. And in many ways, that's the challenge. You have to find a way of channeling it so that you can, if, if, you, if you like, stay well. And make use of it and grow because you don't grow unless you address it. You get stuck. And we know a lot of people who feel very stuck and very isolated Mm. and alone in their grief. And I don't think that's okay. No. And I completely agree with you. And it also leads very nicely in terms of the way that you have both wanted to remember Josh and your film a love that never dies which i've been to see and is incredible and you know there wasn't a dry 
I in the house, you know, including myself. And, you know, and you've obviously traveled across the country and you've spoke really publicly about it. Um, and it's just a wonderful way of remembering, Josh. And are you able to share with the listeners just about the process of creating that? Because, you know, I would imagine it's... it the was film. A, Yeah, the film, because right. it was quite a journey in terms yeah. of doing it, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Um, we had made, as Jane said, we'd made the film about the funeral. Um, then we got involved with a bereavement charity called The Compassionate Friends, and they'd heard that um, we had these skills, and so um, they asked us to make a promotional film for them, which we did, which was called Say Their Name. Um, but um, there came a point, if I, I guess it was about three or four years after Josh had died, when we realised that um, we wanted to do something else. We wanted to, A, travel, because we are of an age that we can travel now, um, um, but we didn't want to travel without some kind of purpose. Um, and, um, yeah, we just wanted to pick up the cameras again. We wanted to carry on um, recording um, and reporting back on, on, you know, what was happening for us. We just, I think we even then realised that, um, you know, it, if you like, you know, the, 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 this thing called grief is an opportunity um, that can open up a lot of, I don't know, creative energies. But it's also what we were doing is going to be an example for other, the way other people can sort of manage this, 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 this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's about, I suppose, our approach and the creation of our charity, The Good Grief Project, was that, you know, grieving for us is about doing, but making a love that never dies. And I think the clue is in the title of the film. It's what we were discovering, that love doesn't die mm. and there is no such thing as closure. There's lots of openings, very much, but closure is for us a dirty word. You know, it's really not about that. And I think that making the film and going on the road trip was our homage to Josh. He was travelling when he died. And in many ways, for us, it was an opportunity to travel as well. And in a way to try and find out where we were at because we were feeling very isolated in our grief. I think, you know, you've got a sell-by date with grief and then you're supposed to be over it and back to who you were. And of course, we were slowly realising that we'd never be who we were before and maybe we didn't want to be who we were before. We would do anything to bring Josh back, but we were very changed because you realise how precarious life can be. Um, and the road trip was cathartic, but of course, making a film is sheer hard work. And making a feature documentary uh, with a plan and making a feature documentary with a plan to show it in mainstream cinemas is a bit madcap in many ways. It's like, what are we doing? Do we really think we can do this? And yeah, um, it, it, we didn't start out no, with the know. idea that A, we started out with a totally different title for the film. Um, the, the the main we didn't start out thinking that this was all going to be shown in cinemas. We just wanted to talk to other people on camera. Yeah, I was I was we going were, to say, did it grow organically? As in you you know you started off with an yeah. idea, you started travelling, and then yeah. you thought, oh, we should contact. Well, some, you not know. quite. We needed to know that we were going to make a film before you start travelling. We had to advertise the fact that we had the project on board, and effectively, the film was called the Good Grief Project. The film yes, was going to be called that. So we advertised it to bereavement organizations and academics working in the field in the states yeah. and we then got 60 responses of people wanting to contribute in some way and we'd laid out our journey from new york through to san francisco and divided it up into the time zones and so that if you had a story and you were going to be on your you were going to be somewhere on our route and you had the availability then we'd come and meet you and talk with you because some of the stories and, and the the people that are involved i mean there's some really powerful stories in there isn't there you know in the end, we had 11 we interviewed 11 we, we stayed and 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 recorded 11 different stories yeah um, in eight weeks mm. that was hard work yeah I bet it was really hard work but I mean I think you know it might be surprising to people listening to this to to recognize that so many people wanted to take part but what they felt was what we felt that nobody wants to talk about grief nobody wants to talk about your loss so when we came along and said would you talk to us and we're bereaved parents they went yes because it's almost a sense of disbelief that anyone would listen yeah. And that's really sad, isn't it? Um, and so it was an honour to listen to people's stories. And it was also 
very, I suppose, very refreshing in many ways to hear people talking so openly about their grief, you know, and knowing that they were having this opportunity to talk about it. But it's also very, a huge responsibility. It's a huge responsibility because you have to do people justice, you know, and we have to deal with their stories with absolute integrity. That's for real. Yeah, you've got to honour. And that's that's sometimes the tricky bit. Even if you are bereaved, you know you've been there. All right. And being empathetic with everybody else's story as well. Mm. There is, you know, you can you can you can get burnt out by this stuff. Yeah, I mean, through totally doing the podcast, you realise and, and yeah. you know, and that's the other thing. You, need, you do need an outlet in terms yeah. of, you know, once you've spoken to someone or you've heard a really tough story. Yeah. So uh, I completely yeah, understand what you're saying in yeah. terms of that. Um so across the UK, it's obviously been really well received, you know, if I'm going by the audience in Bristol. Yeah, we you we know. opened in um, the Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square in May 2018 and it was packed. It was sold out, which was absolutely staggering for us in a way because, you know, we'd had a lot of people saying, well, who on earth is going to want to watch a film about death? Well, what we might say to them, I suppose, it's actually a film about love. It's a film about, it's a road trip. But we were surprised um, and then it just sort of took off uh, to different locations across the UK and more recently um, it's been shown in different countries like Czech Republic and other places in the States and you know it, it continues to have a, 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 a quite a trajectory yeah. but we've also now got it distributed on Amazon and Vimeo so it's available worldwide and we've got an Australian distributor that's brilliant as well, Bima yeah. Films. so it's it's really exciting and rewarding but I think the direction we've gone in as well is that we really like to be there when it's shown wherever possible and 90% of our screenings to date we've always been there mm. to answer questions because I think people really want to talk to bereaved parents but they're terrified to do so in case yeah. they say the wrong thing and we're saying it's okay you can practice on us if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're trying to normalise something which isn't normal. Would you say that was fair comment, Jimmy? Well, I, I, I was going to say that kind of, you know, again, you know, we're doing really well here. We're linking into things. But in terms of, you know, the, grief is a taboo subject in the UK. And a lot of people shy away from wanting to talk about it or they feel they can't talk about it with, you know, they might cross the street with you because they don't know what to say or they might stumble. And, you mm. know, and at the end of the day, I always say that the bereaved want to talk about the people they've lost because it's about remembering and the love that they have like mm. you've said mm. and so yeah I mean do you what do you think we can do better in the UK to, to talk about this subject grief is really painful nobody really really wants to have to deal with pain and I totally and I didn't initially but I totally understand where people are coming from um and two or three years before Josh died a friend of as daughter took her own life Okay, I hadn't got a clue, right, how to talk to him. I didn't have any idea. I shied away from my engagement with him, all right, and it was really, really awkward. It's really awkward. Um, So I understand where people are coming from because I've been there. Grief is not an easy subject because it's painful. Um, um, And... But I think, as Jane is saying, is that if you if you work with your emotions, because grief isn't just one thing either, you know, it's a whole bundle of very, very yeah. disconnected and dissonant emotions. Um, and in and I'm finding it now quite difficult to try and talk about it and sure. what it would what it what it what it actually is. Um, and so, in some way or another. Um, uh, it, it, it's we 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 end up as looking like we're broken people and people don't know how all right they want to put us back together again um we're not actually i don't think that broken because we still have we still breathe we still you know we still have you know a mental facility we we can still um you know operate we still go down to the shops and all the rest of it but um people have a sense i think that grief is 
something that a they would never be able to survive grief for you know after the following the death of a child that they wouldn't be able to survive it so they can't quite understand how it is that we're surviving it and it's that i think that's that that sort of tension i think um that, that gets in the way of us being able to talk honestly with our friends in particular um about what it is that we're going through and that's not everybody it's not everybody, yeah. but there's um, there's a few people there that it's been really difficult. And whether or not that's magnified up into a cultural problem about the way in which um, society in general um, is unable to manage um, any real in-depth conversations about bereavement, um, um, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't done think I've got any answers for that. <laughs> I think you just gave a really good answer, to be fair. I think it was brilliant. I mean, I think everything we do is about trying to open up conversations and find a more comfortable language. Because we've noticed that, you know, I mean, I don't want to make generalizations, but men rarely talk about grief. Um, And when we're running retreats, there's always less men who come, though we actively encourage them. It was very important when we were making A Love That Never Dies to involve as many stories from men as possible to model that. And when we present, we try and do it together because there's no point in it just being women talking about grief we need to join together as couples as you know as people as individuals well, it's, it's and not just about grief it's the fact that um, men in general don't have don't have um as, they don't connect with their own basic primal emotions um openly in the way in which women will do and there are um probably very good sort of reasons for that um which might be the subject of another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I know. And yeah, it would be really nice. I don't know whether or not I, you know, can openly talk about some of the deepest feelings that I have um, with, with, with other guys um, in, 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 in ways that would be normal conversation leading to something more in-depth. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, part of the work that I w- I'm trying to do is, is actually going into schools and talking to children about, you know, grief and its effects later on in life in terms of mental health, you know. And, and that's kind of where we need to start, isn't it? Yeah. It's at the grassroots yeah. in the sense yeah. of children and, you know, just essentially just being able to talk to one another and have somebody maybe appear in there. Uh, school that they can just talk to because yeah. maybe teachers yeah. or something you know so it's kind of opening that dialogue isn't it i absolutely agree with you mark because there was i mean the, the youngest person who's come to see our film is an 11 year old boy we've had people in their 90s but you know the youngest and he came along and he watched the film and he put his hand up after the film and he said why don't people talk about this why don't people talk about death he said i'm going to take it to show and tell tomorrow and i'm going to ask my teacher and I remember thinking, that's fantastic. But I also felt anxious in case it wasn't well received because it should be well received and it should be a general topic of conversation. But everything we're doing with our films and presentations and talks is like you, trying to broaden the reach. I mean, death will reach everyone, not necessarily in the way it has us or you, but, you know, and not necessarily in an untimely way. But no one can sidestep it. And I suppose, you know, we may as well get braver because otherwise what's the prognosis you know it's not good but the underlying principle of what we do with our films and what we do with our retreats our active grief retreats is the idea of continuing bonds so you carry the person with you always in your heart Mm -hmm. to begin with that is a very uncomfortable place but as the years and time goes on it can become less jagged around the edges but it's learning how to do that and it's also been given permission to do that because an awful lot of people believe that, you know, they have to get over it. And it's that closure word again. What does that mean? How could you ever stop? I mean, we're parents. Jimmy is dad of Josh. I'm mum of Josh. How could we ever stop loving Josh? But the expectation and the projection onto us is that we will stop. We will get over it and we will put it to one side. Well, that is not what happens. What happens is Josh rests very comfortably in my heart and I take him everywhere I go. He's with me all the time. He's taught me so much. I love him as much as I ever have, if not more. And he will always remain center stage in my life because he's my son. And that will never go away. Now, that doesn't make me unwell. It doesn't make me screwed up. It just 
I'm a mother and Jimmy's the same. He's a father. That's how it is with your kids. But unfortunately, there's so much pressure to um, express it differently. Yeah. I was going to say that, you know, this podcast is called Grief is My Superpower because of exactly everything you just said. You know, you go through the grief and you learn to deal with it in different ways and it never goes away. But the one thing that does remain, like you just said, is love and the fact that they were here and you just harness it inside and that's what I have always tried to do and that's what yeah. I'm trying to put across in the podcast is like you said with your film and hope you know what is it that parents do or harness to continue you know yes. and uh, I think yeah what you just said was perfect yes I suppose it's um, about relationship anyway yes. so what happens when somebody dies is that your relationship has is broken they're no longer here um, and if we all do consider ourselves as individuals as being a amalgam of various relationships that we have with one another, I'm not just me as a you know yeah. an isolated being. I am right in relationship with you, with Jane, with Josh, whatever. And when somebody dies, your dad, my mum, Josh, whatever it is, that part of us has then you know. It's not, I am no, and Josh, not did Josh only die, I, the, my role as a dad for Josh also went with it. And so um, the way in which we then need to, I guess, repair that brokenness, that fracture in that relationship is the problematic. And um, I don't know that I've actually got any real answers to that. I and you know, it, in terms of where I am with with Josh, is I, I really, really don't know. I really don't know. He's like, so where is he? Here's a memory, yeah, but he's not a living memory. He's a static memory. What do I do to make it much more vibrant? How do I then use his? existence and his non-existence to enliven to you know to you know to make my life yeah more worthwhile again yeah, yeah? because when he died my life was you know it wasn't worth anything mm. frankly mm. you know it, it just wasn't it wasn't worth anything yeah, yeah. except for the fact that i'm in love with jane and i've got two other children yeah but, and then does that not lead us to the grief retreats and what that's very much about you know well that's a good point so yeah please you know Tell us about the grief retreats and what happens. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, in, in, what, Jimmy's say, in what Jimmy's saying there, um, we realise that doing and grief, I mean, being active has meant the world to us. You know, I mean, firstly, peer support was the thing that helped. Peer-to-peer support in our, our relationship with the Compassionate Friends was wonderful. And then we realised that we had to actually do something. We had to go back to who we were before that and carry it forward so the grief retreats are very much about coming together with people and if you like modeling a way forward which is through photography through film through creative writing and actually through physical exercise and boxing so our son joe basically leads boxing workshops and people approach it with terror and say they can't do it but the release that you see in the particularly in the women's faces is remarkable and the same with the photography you know we're both I suppose very comfortable with photography and, and, and Jimmy in particular you know has, he, has within Josh dying had done a book on photography and you know Josh but basically through photography continuing bonds really comes into play so that you can arrive at the retreat and you can take something else away and people don't quite know what to make of that until they experience it but uh, the feedback has been a hundred percent thank you because it's given us hope that we can create something new out of this disaster this loss whether it be suicide ill health whether it be illness you know whether it be sudden traumatic accident it doesn't matter the, the retreats are all about life after the death of a loved child of I a think, child of any age i think it's the progression from from the ways from the start when we started when we started interviewing people for the film we realized that it's sharing stories is um is it, it validates your own if you hear somebody else's story of grieving doesn't matter how different the details are the fact is that you've been there and you know we can relate to one another the resonances are very strong um and and you know 
when you do it on camera or if you take or if you just do it in terms of writing or making a photograph it kind of validates your 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 feelings because these are very unknown feelings you don't know where you are when your child has died you don't know you don't know everything's sort of thrown up in the air so you've got to kind of try and find ways of reinventing yourself to reconnect with the world and if you do that in a practical way okay um if somebody else films you that validates it but if you yourself sit down and write diary that's always been something that is uh, you know is recognized as a very good way mm. of, of um, accommodating loss um but it, it, you know if if you find ways of doing things practically so that at the end of the day you're actually ending up with something tangible mm. another photograph a piece of writing right or the fact that you've just done a 5k run do you know what I mean that's that's sort of those sorts of things are uh, it's, yeah it's it, it's, uh, it's it, it makes it? the whole thing more real mm. and Wait, if it's real then you can accept it if it's not real right if Josh you know is some if if Josh and his death is some sort of fantasy in my world some sort of nightmare yeah if that's all it is then I'm going to float forever. Yeah. So, right? so, so by making it real, so photography and writing makes makes the whole experience more real. It's sort of therapy, counselling. I mean, some people want it, some people don't. But the point is, is that by externalising it, it makes sense of it. But then, of course, what we do at the end of our retreats is we always share the writings and we share the photographs. And whenever we do that... The silence in the room is remarkable and that you can hear people sharply, sharp intakes of breath, the staggering sense of we did it, we've done it, we've survived. Even people boxing, we "We did did it, we've done it together and they leave with hope. And they've arrived very often saying, yeah. look, I'm not going to stay. We've had a lot of people turning up on our retreats. And anyone who runs retreats probably knows this can happen. Who will arrive and say, I'm not going to stay. I'm just going to have a cup of tea. It's a big mistake. And we always say, come on in, have a cup of tea. You can go whenever you like. You don't have to do anything. By the end of the weekend, you can see the transformation. I bet they feel amazing after completing Liberated. it as well. Yeah. Getting home yeah. and just feeling yeah. like I'm so proud of mm-hmm. doing yeah. it. Yeah. So we do photography workshops. We do creative writing workshops and we do what uh, Josh's brother runs, which is the personal uh, physical exercise. Which ones do you think people fear most? Because people come to these weekends with a degree of anxiety about meeting with other bereaved parents. Are they, you know, their emotions, are they going to go haywire? Or is, is it all, if it's, which ones do you think, out of all of those three, that people actually... I would imagine it was the creativity workshops because they're sharing themselves that maybe they haven't shared before. But yeah. I don't know, I might be wrong. No. <laughs> I, well, if you mean the writing, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Because it's at that moment when you are being asked to... Because all you've got is a pen and a paper. Yeah, you got, yeah, that's all you've got. All right? And it's a blank sheet. And actually, you're then being able to... you know, You do, at that point... Like sort of, well, externalize is what you were saying. You're, you're externalizing things. If you've got a photograph, you can actually bury yourself in the, the photographic part. You can bury yourself in the bit of the technology. You know, you can get behind the camera, right? So you're not actually as exposed. Yeah, you can't whatever. hide, can you? Yeah. And also, no. you're probably, yeah. like you said, externalizing, getting all this stuff out of your head and getting it onto paper, whereas you wouldn't have done before, probably. Yeah. You know, so you're making it yeah. real, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow, that's all been amazing. And um, okay, so I guess we talked about, um, you know, remembering Josh and how you do that. And obviously you do the walk. Um, is it once a year you do the walk uh, for Josh? Yeah, the, the walk to the pub from his tree to the pub. Yeah. So we planted a tree on the, in, on the hillside near to us. Yeah. And every, um, the day after Boxing Day, because a lot of his friends have come home for Christmas. Yes. All right. And so it's a one opportunity for them to actually get together. And it's a big thing for them. So there's about 30 or 40 of them, generally speaking, turn Mm, up. mm. I don't know how many there was the last time. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's a good opportunity for them just to get up and. You know, they can A, talk about Josh, but they'll probably be talking about more about their new babies. And but they call Josh, the they call Josh the glue that keeps them together. You know, they come together. And one of his friends, Jessica Carmody, wrote a song about the tree. And it's very beautiful. 
Um, but it basically expresses that idea that, you know, this tree is in memory of you. This, it, it's, it's a place where we go. It's mm. such a comfort. Um, no, I, and it's about ritual. Yeah. And in the early days, it really helped so much. Whereas now we don't go there so often. I think it's an incredible way of, of, of remembering mm. him. Mm. Um, mm. So we're going to move on to some questions from the children at Winston's Wish. Um, yeah, quick fire round. No, it's not. Okay. Don't worry. Uh, so the first Ooh. question is, how do you make yourself feel happy when you're feeling sad? I go for a swim. Yes, you do. You do the outdoor, is it like lake swimming, yeah. which terrifies me, but yeah. looks very invigorating. Yeah. yeah, it's very invigorating. And especially right now as the temperature is dropping, um then yeah that that um yeah i never ever come out of the lake um feeling that i wish i'd never gone in i have tremendous fear about going in as the as the temperatures do get colder um but as soon as i'm in um it's yeah um, the mood totally lifts and I have to say, he goes all year round without a wetsuit in freezing cold icy wow what my answer to that question is I go for a run, but the trouble is that sometimes when I need to go for a run most, I least want to do it. And that's when I tell myself, just go and do it. And it does make me feel happy. Generally, exercise is fantastic, isn't it? Really it? Just for, and I think for the swimming as well, from what I've heard, the focusing on, you, you kind of don't have any other choice apart from just focusing on your breathing as well. From someone who's, I know yeah. a lady who swam. There's a sort like of, that. yeah, there's a sort of mindful rhythm to yeah. it. Um, you know, there's a lot that I could talk about in terms of the value of, 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 of open water. Um, yeah, it's not like swimming in the swimming pool. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, you haven't got no lines to guide you or anything like that, you know. So you have to sight constantly. Um, but effectively, it's a rhythmic thing. And you def- if you don't get your breathing right, you're going to sink. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> but the other thing is, is that what's wonderful about water, okay, is that, yes, it will kill you. It can drown you, right? You do drown in water. But it's also a very, very supportive environment. Mm. It mm. floats. You do float as well. Mm. And I just love being in another environment rather than just air. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. Um, Okay, next one is, what piece of music reminds you of Josh? Every Brother is a Star. Is that Primal Scream? Have I got that right? I think that's the one. Well, that's the one that became... Well, yeah, I'm going to think about it now. Um, I think, no, it'd probably be Ronnie Size, actually. It'll be one. Yeah, there's one. I can't remember which track it is. But there is a track that if you listen to it, um, if you if you listen to it with only half an ear, and it sounds, <laughs> he does like have two ears Josh, for Josh, right, Josh, 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 Josh. There's something in it. I can't remember which yeah. track it is. Yeah. Um, but um, jo- Josh introduced me to drum and bass. Um, at least ways he thought he was introducing me to drum and bass. And um, I believe that um, um, the first Ronnie Size stuff came out about 1996. You know your stuff, then, don't you? You know, you could tell you don't live far from Bristol, yeah, anyway. Effectively, I, yeah, I yeah, introduced yeah. him, but yeah, he. Did, I remember long conversations about the difference between drum and bass and jungle and all sorts of stuff yeah. like that, which I've all forgotten and yeah. don't know about it. But if, but that 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 that. Um, but they've stuck those, in your head, you know. Yeah. And like you know, like we say, music is a powerful thing of remembering people, isn't it? Um, uh, d- I, yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, Jessica, this this who Josh went to, to. Josh had a best friend when he was growing up. I mean, they knew each other before they were born because I was pregnant with Josh and I, my friend was pregnant with Jessica. Um, and they kind of lost touch, but she's become quite a well-known musician. And she's written three songs about Josh. And the last one she wrote is inspired by the Good Grief Project. Um, and it's all about listening to the bereaved and being uncomfortable, you know, what it's like to be uncomfortable around death. And it's just amazing in a way, you know, what she's done and how, how Josh has left a mark on her. Because the song she wrote about the tree his tree is it's just it's like it's a legacy so isn't it it's, it's kind of lived legacy. on yeah but her songs are just mm. so t- it's so touching Plug for comedy it's so touching <laughs> that she is a young woman just it was so touched by that grief and her thing was to write music well that's amazing that it's touched her in that mm. way isn't it um okay i say we one of the questions is how do you think your grief has shaped you um I don't know. I don't know if we touched on that really in terms of the conversation we've just had. But you know, how do you do? You think it shaped you as to who you are today, sitting here? Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. You go first, Jim. 
Now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> While he thinks about it, I could say I, I feel completely changed by my grief. Mm-hmm. I feel stronger in so many ways. I feel like my priorities have shifted. My whole focus has shifted. Um, it's really just because of Josh in a way. He's taught, he's taught me so much about what's important. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to be who I was before. I'd do anything to bring Josh back, but I wouldn't want to be who I was before Josh taught me what he's taught me through his death. Yeah, that's amazing that he's taught you, even though he's, you know, in body, he's no longer with us. You exactly. Know I mean? so that's, that's fantastic. hard to imagine, really, in the early stages of grief that that can happen. Yeah. Jimmy? I think I'm a little bit more anxious these days than I was before. Okay. I think that I I don't th- I still think I'm a little bit unsettled by life. Mm. Um I think I've I've I to a certain extent I have um I guess um receded from social life as well. I find it I find I don't find being in 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 in, in small groups very comfortable. I'm okay in big groups where we've got a role to play um, in audiences and stuff, but in small social groups, I do feel um, uh, a little in- uncomfortable. So, in, in in part of going swimming is my own company. Company, you, 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 you when you're swimming, you can't talk to people. I do you know what I can? I res- resonate with everything you just said. I find yeah. small groups myself difficult as well. Bigger groups are more right. Yeah. You know, I find it all, always strange that I do what I do, but at the same time, I'm quite introverted in a sense of I could stand out in front of about 300 children and read a story. But when it comes to being yeah. like you said yeah. in a small group, I yeah. don't know if that's because of everything we've gone through and you know, uh, you know, the overthinking, the thinking about life, the sort of really, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I think it's a it's a certain fear that you're going to have to explain shit right and you know i don't i don't i want to you know i don't want to talk about josh the whole time i don't want to talk about all of that and yet somehow or other you know i've got this invisible mark on my forehead that yeah. the the that um you know it is what's going to be expected or what could happen because of a certain interaction yeah is that, you know, it's going to be some challenging, um, you know, thoughts and conversations coming up. But, but, but also when bad things happen, like what happened to you when you were a child, what's happened to us as adults, it takes away your belief in what should and shouldn't happen. And when you have a loss of belief mm. in how things should, if you like, pan out and materialise, you have a loss of confidence mm. in the world. Mm. And you have to rebuild that. And I think a lot of people who've been through grief and bereavement do feel that they've lost a belief in themselves and in others and in the world mm-hmm. so trust is Definitely. trust is so damaged yeah. and you have yeah. to rebuild yeah. that there's always yeah. that trust as well that yeah. you know potentially it could happen again you know absolutely and, and there and oh you know God. i have chats about this with my wife all the time since sim, sim's oh. always trying to knock it out of me and just yeah. saying look you know how could you ever experience anything as bad as that but yeah. always in the back of your head there's that seed that you yeah. know yeah. What about if this happens? Yeah, you know, exactly. because so if we get a phone yeah. call from one of the, from Joe or from Rosa, it's uh, it's uh, important that the first sentence is "I'm okay." Everything's fine. I'm Just okay. For a chat. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, a yeah, chat yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, she was yeah, she was knocked over the other day by a bicycle, and had to go to hospital. Right. And yeah, all of that. Every you know. Yeah. That that is that is really tough, actually. Is, I think, yeah, what I'm realising is parenting in general is uh... <laughs> parenting. <laughs> think about these sorts of things until it happens to you. Yes, right? I never really thought about it at all that anything would ever happen to any of our children. Mm. But now it has happened to one of them. Yeah. The fear is that it's going to be happening. And for our granddaughter Elsie, right? I can't stand the thought that somehow or other, you know, somebody's left the gate open and she's going to run out into the middle of the street. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the thing is that everything that we're saying and everything that people who experience grief goes through is that trauma manifests itself. You can't be a bereaved parent and not be traumatized. Trauma is not, being traumatized is not a dirty word. Trauma is quite normal. But, you know, you have to rebuild your world as best you can and deal with the trauma. And that can reawaken at times of stress. And that's what we're all kind of trying to manage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, another question. That wasn't a short answer. That wasn't, yeah, no, but we're doing all right. Um, so 
how I mean we talked about remembering Josh um, in terms of you know the walk and stuff like that and obviously the film is a huge dedication to him so I think in terms of remembering on his birthday and things like that you know I would say that you you, you do a pretty good job with remembering him don't you 16th of January is a difficult one mm. right um, but there's more expectation around other people. I actually find that it, it, it's, it's the sort of family get-togethers around Christmas, actually, that I find the most difficult one. I just don't like being at home for Christmas. And so what's happened is that we've often gone away for Christmas and we've gone off somewhere else and made a bit of a holiday out of it. Mm. But. But for, for me, and this is an odd one, and it's not really what you asked, but my birthday is the difficult one. Yeah. Because I'm a year older and Josh isn't. Yeah. So that always gets me. I find my birthday really, really hard. And I think a lot of bereaved people actually f- experience that, especially when it's a child. Yeah, I mean, like Christmas for me, Simone's like, oh, you don't like Christmas, do you? you know, I mean, we know why, you know, just because of family and, you know, all of this stuff. Yeah. But um, funny enough, I always forget my dad's birthday, but I always remember the day that he died, you know. Okay. Exactly. It's that yeah. date exactly. and time of year that is etched yeah. in my mind yeah. forever. Right. But yeah, his birthday, I have yeah. to remind myself or yeah. my sister. And yeah. When was dad actually born? You know. Totally get that. Yeah. Um, okay. One last question, which I do like to ask my guests is, if you had one final conversation with Josh, what do you think you might want to say to him? I want to tell him that 22 years was amazing. I wish it could have been longer, but to have him in my life for 22 years was just magic. But I'm so sad that it wasn't longer and I love him. Yeah. The conversations I used to have with him, he'd just be, he'd, he'd be on his way after work. He'd go for a swim in Pimlico. Um, and it would be an hour's journey from the swimming pool back to where he used to live in, in off the Woolworth Road. And I could tell the difference where he was. He was walking down the street on the bus, walking down the street in the front door, blah, 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 by the atmospheres in the back. And I would love to have those conversations again. Just, uh, just, just that, just sort of, just a sort of connection. It's kind of a remote connection, if you like, but you know, just knowing that he was there, out there in the world, getting on with life and doing stuff um, um, yeah that, w- that would be nice and I don't know what we talk about but you know it didn't really matter what we talk about the fact is that we would just be having a conversation yeah yeah exactly I think you know both of those beautiful um so look guys it's been an amazing conversation you know as i say with each podcast it's our grief is individual we all deal with it in our own way and uh, and i really appreciate you both coming on and uh, your insight into uh, into your own grief has been fantastic so it's been amazing thank you so much. to talk to you mark and you know where you share your story as well it just models what we're trying to do we're all trying to do we're trying to make this more comfortable and none of it's comfy not one bit 